And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Ron Fournier has been one of the most incisive and insightful observers of the Washington scene for a quarter of a century. He's also the father of a a young man with autism. And now he's written a great book called Love That Boy, in which he discusses uh, his son, his family, and uh, their, their, their struggles and revelations around, uh, around autism. Um, and we sat down the other day to talk about the book and about the political scene, the crazy political scene that we find ourselves in today. Ron, you and I know each other through politics. We're going to talk a little politics during the course of this conversation. Great. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about you, about your book, about your child. We have that in common as well. But first, tell me a little bit about your own life. You grew up in Detroit. Your dad was a police officer. Yeah, I grew up in the same block on the east side of Detroit that my mom and dad were raised on. Uh, They grew up together, and my dad uh, uh, became a Detroit cop in the early 60s. He was uh, a Kennedy Democrat, and like a lot of people on my side of uh, Detroit, slowly became a Reagan Democrat with with the... uh, Detroit riots, and he was a riot cop, uh, kind of in between. Did you read, by the way, Marinus's book, David Marinus's book, Once of, in a Great City? One of my top five Isn't that a great books. book? It's a one, he did a great job. But that's just the time that he was describing. Actually, matter of fact, a lot of the cops he talked in there were my dad's friends. I kind of helped him out a little bit with that. But what really gets me about that if we, <laughs> is, you know, Marinus wrote a great book, the best book, about Bill Clinton. Yes. And Bill Clinton and how much he was shaped by Hot Springs, Arkansas. Well, I covered Bill Clinton in Hot Springs, Arkansas. When I read that book years ago, every page, I was jealous. Like, oh, my God, what a great no, book. He's, and now he does a book a on Detroit. He's a generis. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now this Detroit book is based in 1963, which is my birth year. So it's like Marinus is just writing every every book I should have written follow, much better than fo- I could have. Right? Around. Well, he's written every book everybody should have written much better <laughs> than anybody could have written. He's wonderful. So, he's wonderful. Yeah. But uh, so what? So what? You you were there when... Detroit made the turn that he wrote about. Yeah, no, I was born in 63, and, and I graduated from the University of Detroit in 85, which was the beginning of the end of the industrial era and the beginning of the end of the old newspaper industry, and I literally could not find a job anywhere. You knew you wanted to be a newspaper man. Yeah, you know, basically since sixth, seventh grade. Um, there was a time I wanted to be a cop. I assumed you had to be, you know, because my dad was, but then the, the city and the job kind of got... Uh, bad for my dad. I could see how it was it was no longer what it was for him. Um, and I just, I've always liked finding crap out and sharing it with people, uh, whether it's covering a city council or a school board meeting. So I'll, since I was and a you, pretty young man, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. And so you ended up, as you mentioned, down in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Only job I could find is little uh, little daily down in Hot Springs. And What'd I, you do? Just write newspapers all over the country? Um, yes, but they all said no. The only the way I got into this one was a buddy had graduated a year before me from U of D, and he had gotten the job down there where on the weekends you put together the paper, and three days a week he covered cops and courts. And when he was promoted a year later, I came down and took his job. So it was luck. You, I've been very lucky. You know, um, when I uh, was, I, I, like you, decided young that journalism, my mo- my mom was a reporter and that she was a great one, wasn't she? Uh, yeah, she mm-hmm. she was a she was a pioneer mm-hmm. back in New York in the '40s, but um, you know I went back to New York in the summer of my freshman year of college, and literally knocked on I think 75 doors <laughs> in the city just begging right. uh, for a job. Finally, found one at a little newspaper that was down on its luck where they 
had needed somebody to do everything and learn that way. So you, that was your version was in the hot spring. Yeah, and the way it happened uh, was I'll never forget. There's a guy, a columnist in Detroit named Neil Shine, who wrote about the East Side, and uh, I admired him growing up. And he ended up teaching journalism ethics at University of, of Detroit. And I took that course, met my wife in that course, my future wife, and uh, uh, really sucked up to Mr. Shine, figuring this is going to be my ticket to the Detroit Free Press. So I get this offer from Hot Springs, and I call up Mr. Shine. I said, look, at, you just tell me that there's a chance I could work for the Free Press in the next couple of years. Not a promise. Just tell me there's a chance I could work for the Free Press, and I'll stay in Detroit. And without skipping a beat, he says, I think you better move to Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> I have a story like that from the, when I worked at the Chicago Tribune. Uh, Jim Squires was the editor of the Chicago Tribune, who went on to become Ross Perot's spokesman yeah, back yeah. in uh, 92. And Squires was a hard case. I mean, he didn't deal with people very well. And a reporter came in. Uh, I'll never forget this guy's name was Peter Reich, and he'd been at the Tribune for years. And he said, knocked on the door, and Squires was writing, didn't even look up. And he said, come in. Come in. And he continued to write, didn't look up at Reich, and Reich said, hey, I got an offer from the uh, Arizona Republic, but I've been here 25 years, and I'm just so torn, I don't know whether to stay or go. And Squires, just still not looking up, said, go. <laughs> so, so I guess newspaper people are pretty blunt. Is, those is, those is, were the days, is, were they? Is the story here. <laughs> but uh, so uh, did you come across Clinton? In Clinton by that time was was governor of Arkansas. Yeah, he'd been governor, um, in a, you know, by, by 85, he'd been governor, you know, more than a decade, no, almost a decade. Um, my first couple of years, I worked in Hot Springs, and so I didn't cover him, but I was there two weeks when they sent me down to the local hotel in Hot Springs to cover the governor. And I knew so little about Arkansas and so little about, about politics that I honestly thought, as I'm walking down Bathhouse Road, that I was going to meet Orville Faubus who was the desegregationist governor, couldn't be more different than Bill Clinton. Instead, I walk in, and there's this young, good-looking guy giving a speech about something called the global economy with no notes, and I assumed every politician had notes in a teleprompter. And then afterwards, I walk up and, you know, very shakily voice, introduce myself to to Bill Clinton, and he says, where are you from? And I said, Detroit. And he says, well, where? And I says, Michigan. He says, no, I know Detroit's from Michigan. (laughs) What part of Detroit? I said, well, the east side, Seven Mile Road and Gratch. He says, isn't that over there by Harper Woods? And there's a freeway (laughs) and there's a clock. And he tells me all about Macomb County and my my neighborhood. And and, uh, from then I realized this this guy is awfully darn smart. Yeah. And uh, uh, you ended up at the AP uh, covering the state house. Yeah, a couple years after I went to Arkansas, I moved up to the Arkansas Democrat in Little Rock, and I was the, that's where I started covering the state house in '87. And then in '89, I was uh, hired by the AP in Little Rock, and I covered him right through. And my wife, wife and kids, and I literally moved here in '93 during his inauguration. You, um, uh, what, what, what are what are your sort of salient? Uh, observations of Bill Clinton as someone who's watched him all of these years. I mean, how would you sum him up for people, if that's possible? Yeah, well, I, when I came to Washington, I thought every politician I would cover would be brilliant and, and, and uh, incredibly accessible um, and on top of every issue. Um, I thought they all would be like Bill Clinton, and so far I've come across hardly anybody, even in his league. You work for a man I would certainly put in his league. 
But Clinton was amazing as governor. He would walk in at the beginning of the day, walk right by the press room, and we would start following him around the Capitol all day like ducklings. And it'd be an eight-hour, nine-hour news conference to the point by you know some of these weeks, at the end of the week, he'd walk in and say, is there anything else you need from us? And we would literally, would you just go home? Shut the hell up. <laughs> and as a reporter, you, you know, I'm sure you've covered guys like this where you thought you had something on them. And you walk up and, hey, hey, I, you, know, you, you tuck this in the bill. And you say, oh, no, no. And you explain another way around it. And you think he's explained it. And you go back and you listen to tape and realize, oh, that son of a gun, he's got me again. And I go chase him down again and figuring out another way to ask the question another way. And again, he would corner me. And, you know, it, it was always, always was a step ahead of the press corps. You covered his campaign in 92. Um, and there were times when those of us who weren't exposed to him thought, uh, and I was a supporter of his in, in, oh, right. in 92, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so all my buddies were in the campaign. David mm -hmm. Wilhelm uh, was the manager. Yeah. He was a Chicago he was boy. A, a, an old uh, partner of mine in mm -hmm. various uh, campaigns. Uh, Rahm Emanuel obviously was oh, yeah, down yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there were times when I thought, uh, this guy's done. Yeah. I mean, uh, right. you know, the, the various Jennifer Flowers and mm -hmm. the Vietnam letter and so on. Did you think he was done, or did you have enough exposure to Bill Clinton to think, this guy's going to find his way out of this box? No, I hate to admit it, but but I, I didn't think he'd get started. Uh, I could not imagine him being president of the United States. And if you'd asked me in, in 91, 92, I would said there's no way he could be president which that's why that's the last time I've made a prediction. And it wasn't that I thought, didn't think he was ready or you know I thought there was too many scandals or anything. Uh, for example, Whitewater was something we'd been looking at for 10 years down there and saw that land deal was totally clean. And you know to this day, I think that was a disgrace that was held over his head. Um, but it was just that he was too familiar. I mean, Little Rock's a small town and covering a state house like that, you get to know the person you're covering very intimately. And that can be both good and bad. Um, but the one thing, it's hard to... You can imagine your uncle being president of the United States, or you can imagine the banker down the street being president of the United States. Yeah. So I knew he was smart, and I was really impressed with him as a political figure, and he seemed like a very honest, decent man. Um, but just the idea of him being president just seemed too much of a reach just because of my parochial uh, 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 looking at him. Um, and I didn't understand. I was too new to the game to realize just how great of a racehorse he was because, again, I didn't have anything to compare it to. I don't think you ever know. I didn't know when Barack Obama was uh, contemplating a race for the presidency. I didn't know how he was going to do I was very blunt with him about it. Right. I thought he was too thin-skinned. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you just don't know until you see someone out there because the gauntlet is so difficult. I mean, look what's happening to Donald Trump right now, yeah. you know. I mean, the, the, the finally, it is a test. Mm -hmm. It is an endurance test. It is a pressure test. Uh, because you're auditioning for the toughest job on the planet. Right. And uh, you just don't know how people are going to deal with that until you see them uh, deal with it. But obviously Clinton uh, took every punch that was thrown. Yeah, and if you, you know, looking back, it's, it's, it's a lot clearer now when you, you see where he came from and raised by a, a single mother in a pretty hard scrabble town um, and uh, making his way in a pretty tough political state. And I think getting beat young, um, made him a better man and a better, uh, certainly a better candidate. Um, but yeah, I, I had no, I had no clue. I can remember him having doubts. I remember one time we're standing on the tarmac, me and a few other uh, state reporters, and we're looking at Clinton talking to the national press corps that was in town, um, and we're kind of making fun of the national folks. You know, all these parachutists coming in town. You know, we're being smug local guys. 
And he comes over and he's talking, not to me, but one of my colleagues in the press corps who he really trusted, and she'd been in the business quite a while. And he said something like, they keep asking about the women. Is that really going to be a problem? They can't, that can't be an issue, is it? And, and I'm not going to say who she was because she's passed away, but God rest her soul. She said, the hell, it's not going to be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. The, um, uh, you moved to Washington uh, with him and, you, yep. and, and uh, with your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to get into your book, uh, Love That Boy, which is a wonderful book and one I hope everybody uh, reads. Um, Thank you, David. What was, and you're very candid about, uh, you're very candid about um, what the impact on your family was yeah. uh, about, uh, from your lifestyle as a reporter, from the demands of your uh, uh of your craft yeah talk a little bit about that well it turned upside down we went from a friday when um i was working 40 hours a week and scheduled hours in a a small town with a a, a group of friends and it was the only life my wife and i had established because that's where we started our marriage and our family to suddenly um i'm in the presidential motorcade and i'm in the white house and i'm traveling all over the world with the president and my ego is getting stroked like crazy um, and I always tried to be um, someone who put his family first. I never forgot um, what was going to be important to me in my life. I love my wife more than anything on God's earth. And um, uh, you know, I know being a father is the most important job I'll have, second most important to being a husband. Uh, but boy, you can know that intellectually, but you can lose sight of what it really takes to put that first when now you're working 80 hours a week and the President of the United States knows you by your first name. Um, and every day you're making choices and, and looking back on it too often, um, I was making choices that was putting, uh, my ego ahead of the the family. You know, when I read that, I very much related to it. I wrote my own memoir last year. It's a great book. And thank you. And one of the, uh, most painful parts of it was because if you're going to write an honest book, you have to confront Mm -hmm. the realities of your life. And one of the realities of mine was that, uh, at difficult times in our our lives, my uh, my family's life. Um, I was preoccupied with my career, mm-hmm. with campaigns, um, and and uh, and my family paid a price for that. And one of the reasons why this is so sensitive, I think, for both of us is um, one of your one of your children had particular challenges. Yeah. So talk about talk about that. Well, we have three children. Uh, the two oldest are, are, are girls, and the, the youngest is our, our only son, Tyler. Um, and he was always a, a precocious, a beautiful, uh, quirky little boy that just uh, you know, lit up our lives. We knew he was special. Um, but we didn't know um, that the kind of challenges he was facing, or at least in my, uh, my respect, we didn't want to know. We were kind of ignoring a lot of the signs that were there. Um, partly because we were busy and partly because we were ignorant. And hopefully this book will help enlighten some people to some of the signs of autism, which is what Tyler has. Part of it, though, to be honest with you, was um, we were afraid of him being different. And I think that's a, a natural fear for parents to have, is you don't want to admit that your child might be different. Well, you know, son of a gun, we're all different. Um, and now I see um, what makes Tyler so special is his uniqueness. And I wish I could have gotten over um, 
those roadblocks sooner so we could get him the kind of help he's getting now. That's another regret I have. You begin your book with this really compelling story about your visit to the Oval Office when George W. Bush was president, and you brought your family with you. You were leaving your your bureau assignment there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Tyler had an interchange with the president of the United States in ways that the president wasn't probably accustomed to in the Oval Office. T- talk about that. Yeah, there's a good story about your old boss i like to tell, too, if we have time. But uh, Tyler was only five years old uh, when I'm leaving the White House beat, and a tradition presidents have had for years is bringing the family in to say goodbye to the correspondent. It's a wonderful tradition. So Tyler walks in, and all he can talk about is Barney the dog, is, is, is Bush's dog. Tyler was five. I didn't know he was autistic then, but looking back on it, his fixation on things like animals is a sign. So he's talking with his deep voice, really talking really fast. And he's obsessed with not only Barney, but also Fala, which is Roosevelt's dog. Mm-hmm. So he's telling poor Bush all these stories about And Bush is, you know, look, he wasn't looking at his watch. He should have been. He only had a few minutes. Um, and I'm, as parents will be, I'm kind of, I'm worried that, on one level, I'm worried that he's embarrassing himself and putting out the president. But really, I'm worried that he's embarrassing me, to be honest with you. And on the way out, a Bush who could not have been more gracious, and by the way, Obama and Clinton in this book also were very gracious, but in this story in particular, he grabs me by the hand, shaking my hand, and he gets real close, kind of eyeball to eyeball, like Clinton is famous for. He looks at me, and almost like a presidential directive, and says, love that boy. At the time, I thought it was kind of a nice thing Which to say. the title of your book. That's the title of the book, Love That Boy. And if you'd asked me then what I would have said, I think what he means by that is, you know, I should love my boy despite his idiosyncrasies, despite the fact that he's quirky. Um, throughout the course of the book and maturing a little bit and being honest with myself, I now realize love that boy because of his idiosyncrasies. Love him because of what makes him different. That story says something about George Bush, too. Yeah. I mean, George Bush has an image of, uh, you know, kind of gruff, mm-hmm. uh, sort of good old boy. Which is but, true. Yeah. But there's a, a that that shows a kind of sensitivity that I think people um, that would surprise some people. Yeah. And, and I had some interactions with him myself in the transition that I, where he's incredibly gracious mm-hmm. and sensitive. Um, but uh, it's not a side that he displayed very much in public. Well, because it's it's a it's a it's a different skill test. Test. One thing I'd always kind of thought about. Bill Clinton and, and, and Bush was kind of confirmed in, in, in the interactions they had with Tyler. Bill Clinton obviously could read a country better than maybe any political leader in this mm-hmm. nation's history. He, he feels as our, witnessed by the fact that he knew your neighborhood as well. Exactly. He feels our pain. Um, George Bush isn't as good at that. But I've always thought in a room, Bush is much better in the one-on-one, one-on-four or five of reading a room and in breaking people down psychologically and understanding how to push their buttons. Bill Clinton is much better on a broader scale, but he's not as good in a room, I don't think, as, as um, George Bush. And in this case, while men were both very gracious, Tyler actually saw more of himself in Bill Clinton, which is interesting, being an, an Aspie. Um, and it was George Bush who really unlocked... Uh, um, Tyler's mind when he met him for the book uh, when Tyler was 12 years old. So when you, um, I, I was interested in that story and, and your admission that, you know, you were worried about him embarrassing himself, but you were worried about him embarrassing you. Isn't that the economy you know, of all parents? My, my daughter, Lauren, uh, yeah, tell me about has her. special needs herself. I mean, she had epilepsy from the time she was seven months old wow. and all kinds of attendant behavioral uh, issues, and uh, we were in the White House during the Clinton years, uh, and 
uh, we were going to going to the Oval Office, and uh, she had kind of a, a tantrum, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I had those same impulses, but so did my kids, my two boys. Uh, uh, you know, this was a recurring theme in their childhood. And the thing that I've learned over time when you have a, a child with special needs is that that child gets a lot of attention, mm-hmm. but there's a big impact on the siblings. But tell me about it. And, uh, you know, my what I found is that my sons were deeply empathetic and sympathetic to my daughter's problems and also filled with resentment right. because of all the attention she got and all the things they had to give up because of her and these scenes of embarrassment. Um, And then they felt, and then they felt guilty. Right. Because of of that resentment. I think this is a little appreciated uh, aspect of, uh, of a family with a child who has special needs. And because of that, I, I don't know what your your view is, but certainly with my family, my daughters, the older ones, you just described them completely. But you didn't end the story with the fact that because of what they went through, they are two of the most um, wise, um, yes. mature, yes. caring, uh, incredible young ladies, um, in part because they helped raise their brother. Yeah. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. There's no question about it. But it does speak to the fact that these things are family challenges, not simply no challenges for the child or the parent. Even broader, I tell you, uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, famous phrase, it takes a village, has never meant more to me than uh, when we start dealing with, with Tyler's issues. Because for us, it's not just the family, but it's the neighbors and the friends and the friends we lost, the friends we gained. It's the principal. The, yeah. the, I think I've read in the book, one of the greatest leaders I've met in Washington is his high school principal who's created this incredible culture for him. So it really does take a village for us to, to help uh, those amongst us who have the most need. So the book talks about how you, uh, on your wife's advice, sort of right. re- rebuilt your relationship with your son mm-hmm. by taking him on trips to various historic uh, sites and to meet presidents, something right. most young men don't get to do. Uh, talk about what that meant to you. Well, first, you end up with a good point. We are blessed in many ways. When we have the enough uh, money and resources and time to take care of my son, I, I feel terrible for folks with special needs, especially autism, who, who can't take care of their, their children the way that we could. Um, but it was this was Lori. She's the hero of the story. We, we walked out of the doctor's office when he was diagnosed, and she's she got tears in these beautiful blue eyes, and she says, "It's time to step up, buddy. It's time to step up. You got to step up and spend more time with him, and you're, you got to step up and get him out in the world to do things that we just discovered aren't just uncomfortable for him, but they're unnatural, like shaking hands and looking people in the eyes and modulating his voice and not interrupting. And what you're going to do, and literally, this is as we're walking to the car, you're going to go to presidential sites and historical sites because that was one of Tyler's fixations. And as you know, kids with autism have fixations. And it was, as she said, it was the presidency that kept you away from him and the girls. So let's <coughs> use your job to help them. So our first stop was actually at your White House. Uh, you might have been there. It was at the Christmas party that President Obama had for the staff, for the for the press in uh, December of, of uh, 2010. Yeah, I may have been there. Yeah. yeah. And the whole time, so usually Lori went with me, but she gave me the invitation and she said, take Tyler. So Tyler and I are standing in this long line of, uh, you know, 45 minute long line of other journalists, you know, blow dried uh, TV anchors and other stuffy columnists like myself. And for 45 minutes, Tyler's practicing what 
comes natural to most of us. Hello, Mr. President. Hello, Mr. President. He's, he's pretending to shake a hand. Hello, Mr. President. Hello, Mr. President. We go all the way through the line the whole time. Hello, Mr. President. Hello, Mr. President. Found people around you were aware that he was doing that. Yep. And he's, so he's kind of bothering them. And like some guy comes up with the tuxedo and the tray of bacon-wrapped shrimp. And Tyler says, I hate shrimp. And again, I got that feeling you were talking about. Yes. Oh, no, he's yes. embarrassing me. So the couple in front of us is now being introduced to the president. As you know, it's a very formal setting. And the Marine Guard is introducing him. And so we're, we're, we're going to be next. And Tyler does his last practice, hello, Mr. President. He looks up to me and he says, I hope I don't let you down, Dad. Which even now makes me, um, yeah. I mean, can you, what kind of dad raises their son to feel that kind of uh, resentment or but embarrassment? He but he obviously was getting that vibe. He, he obviously had the insight. But I shouldn't, I felt, I feel guilty to this day that you know, I should have been able to tell him, no, there's nothing you'll say, son, that would ever embarrass me or ever make me not proud of you. But instead, all I could think about was, oh, my God, he's going to embarrass himself or embarrass me. And you can imagine what happened next. Um, no sooner than I'm going through that and Tyler's, you know, trying to screw up the courage to do something that's very, very hard for an Aspie. Um, I walk up and I grab the president's hand. Tyler's behind me and President Obama asked me about my basketball game because we've played together. Yes. And he knows how terrible I am. And I look out of the corner of my eye, and Michelle Obama is wrapping my son in this patented Michelle Obama hug mm-hmm. that's as big as, you know, a mountain. And she's brushing away his, um, the hair from his eyes. And I write in the book, as I turn around, I'm thinking to myself, you know, this isn't turn around to have the photo taken. The problem here isn't Tyler or even the autism. The problem here is, is me. Um, I need to stop being so worried about um, how he is being perceived by other people and help him um, be as good as he can possibly yeah. be. No, I, 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 I often think about the fact that when you have a child with, with challenges like this, as we both do, um, your aspirations change over time. They need and, to, yeah. You know, and my daughter was having seizures for 19 years, and we were worried that we would lose her. Wow. And... Um, we dreamed of a day when she would be happy and healthy every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's there. She has a lot of challenges, and she lost a lot. But she's happy and healthy every day. Good for you. And that's, uh, you know, that is, it, it seems like a modest aspiration, but it's really the most important. But I bet you any money, David, your definition of happy and healthy have themselves changed in the last 15 years. Yeah, that's, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. But uh, t- talk about... Uh, where uh, Tyler is today and how he's doing. He's, he's, uh, he's doing really good. Thanks for asking. He's uh, a senior in high school um, in Arlington, Virginia. He'll be graduating in a couple months. Um, we're going to have him probably, he wants to go to college. Um, he doesn't think, we don't think he's quite ready for a four-year college yet, Mainly, more socially than academically. Like a lot of these kids, he's really, really smart. Um, so we're looking to put together the kind of package around him, the kind of services and support around him that, frankly, fall off the cliff once these kids graduate yeah. from high school. Um, and again, I don't know, think that's great. I don't think that's widely appreciated. Well, that people need to understand that. Yeah, we do because of some of the legislation that's been passed in the last generation or two. There's a lot of support that comes with these kids through the public school system. And if and if the public school can't provide services to these these kids the money follows them to right. a private school it's right. a wonderful thing this country is doing for its children for its future um, but boy when they hit 18 it all goes away right it just disappears and it's frightening 
for a parent, it is. Lori and I have, you know, uh, it, it's hard to sleep at night. Yeah. Uh, uh, and God forbid, what would happen if we're not there for him right. anymore? And really, the scary thing is, what if I didn't have a job? What if I was a single parent? What if instead of raising him in suburban Washington, I was raising him in the inner city of Detroit? Um, but luckily, we're gonna. We have the means to. Um, to kind of replace the services that have, that he's had through school, so he'll have a therapist. He'll have we'll make sure he's got a part time job. Probably do some volunteerism work to keep him busy, basically to keep him growing. Because the doctors would tell you, these uh, these especially these young men with Asperger's syndrome with high functioning autism, they have another ten years after they after they hit eighteen where they can still really develop if you keep them out in the world and if you keep teaching them these skills that come naturally to most of the rest of us. But what tends to happen is one or two things. Because they're so bright, they'll go off to a four-year college, but then they get lost socially and they crawl within themselves. And you know, Depression's a big problem with them and isolation's a big problem with them because they're kind of off on their own. Um, um, and the only thing they're strong at is academics, not the social part of life. Or they don't go anywhere and they spend 10 years, you know, the cliche is spend you know, the next 10 years in their parents' basement. And it, it would be natural for Tyler to just to crawl within himself. Um, um, and so the trick for us is to help nudge him outside of himself without pushing. And how do you know? It's like with any parent, even yeah. with an atypical, or even with a neurotypical child, how do you know when to push and, and, and conjole? What are, your, what are your hopes for him? I want him to be happy and healthy. Yeah. <laughs> um, my definition for both those have, have, have changed. Um, you would ask me 10 years ago, happy would be he'd be a great athlete and uh, would, would, would uh, marry a, uh, an attractive, uh, wealthy woman, and they'd both be Ivy League graduates um, um, and be uh, living in a great neighborhood. Um, now my definition of happiness is, is um, you know, is he going to be able to be as good as he can possibly be, which for Tigers, Tyler is going to be. Um, you know, he can be a fully functioning member of the society. And will he be a good man? Will he be somebody whose neighbors can count on and uh, whose employers can count on and who's able to, uh, like a lot of these um, uh, men and women on autism, we're realizing um, that because of what makes them a little bit different, they bring a lot to the table culturally um, that um, makes us a better place. They're very detail-oriented. They're uh, uh, they're, like I said, they're off the charts with their uh, their IQs. They can't lie. Um, they are just totally um, guileless individuals. They're just big-hearted, sweet people. So that's 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 Hence, that's where uh, I see them going. Probably not a career in politics. Huh? <laughs> Certainly not in journalism. <laughs> But he's he's a good kid. We just wanted to make him um, help him be the best that he can. It's a cliche, but that's uh, that's that's what we want for him. When I read your book, one of the questions I had was because I had this problem when I was writing my book. How revealing was I at liberty to be about the challenges my family faced, and how would they feel years from now reading yeah. uh, what I wrote? You've really laid bare. Uh, a lot about about Tyler, about his challenges, mm-hmm. about uh, your family's struggles. Did you have any kind of conversation with him? Did he know you were working on this? Was he oh, cool definitely. with that? Yeah, no, no. He knew from the beginning um, that we were taking these trips because mom wanted us to and that mom was going to want me to write a magazine article. That was a plan from the beginning. Um, and he knew from the beginning that he had veto authority 
right on through. So he read the last draft of the magazine piece, and actually, if you go back and look at it, his comments, him editing, actually ended up making for a nice ending of that piece. Um, and the same thing with the book. Up until uh, uh, you know uh, two weeks ago, uh, he could have pulled the pulled the rug out from beneath the book. Um, we weren't going to do anything that he wasn't totally comfortable with. Um, and with the girls and my wife, they were part of the process. I mean, some of the hardest stuff I did was was interviewing my my wife and my kids, especially my wife. Um, and they, of course, read all the drafts. And there was some stuff, um, a, a couple things that I can't go into, obviously, where we did pull back a little bit, not with Tyler, but with my daughters. Mm-hmm. You think? Or do you, I, 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 we talked about the catharsis of writing memoirs when you have challenges like uh, these. Uh, do you feel your family? is stronger for having confronted this uh, through the process of this book? I don't know if they are because my wife is, is just a rock. She's always been very mm-hmm. strong. Um, We're both and, and blessed kids, that way. Oh, my God. I, what a wonderful woman. I, I'm definitely – the family's probably stronger because I'm a better piece of it now, mm-hmm. um, having um, really looked inside myself and, okay, here's how you have to get better, and I'm still – you know, maybe sixty percent where I need to be, um, but I'm a little bit further yeah. down. Yeah. At least everything's more a work in progress, my man. And I, I, sure, I sure as heck am. But uh, it, it, it's I've always thought it was a cliche when authors say that a book was a cathartic and it helped helped them out. Well, this, this case, it well, really is true. like you know, the thing about cliches is they're often true. This uh, this really did change the family. Um, and if nobody buys this book, although I hope everybody does, um, we've gotten more out of it than we ever thought we would. It's 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 all gravy from here. So you've known uh, Hillary Clinton as long as you've known Bill Clinton. Yeah, and probably known her better in a way. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that uh, is sort of bewildering is she's been in the public eye for um, for a quarter century, and yet a lot of people don't feel they know her. Right. Uh, first of all, why is that? And what is she, who who is the person that you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the people who has seen and believe in, you know, hear about the other Hillary. It's almost become a cliche that there's this other Hillary that, you know, has never yeah. been seen. I've seen it. She, uh, in Little Rock, I, you know, there, we would occasionally bump into each other. We both like to take walks around downtown at lunch, and we would take long walks together. Not friends, but, you know, the neighbor, basically. And, um, uh, when she was first lady, I used to go on foreign trips with her where she really did kind of let her hair down and talk to the press quite a bit and had a lot of... Um, uh, you know, real people time. I, I see her as, I, I've said for years, David, that if I could have dinner or a drink with one of the Clintons, I would take Hillary hands down. It wouldn't even be close. Um, funny, That'd warm, be surprising to people. Not even close. Um, uh, funny, warm, can have a conversation. It's a dialogue where Bill Clinton's brilliant, but it's pretty much a, a, a monologue. Um, Bill Clinton can tell a, a, a good joke, but Hillary Clinton's just more funny, spontaneously she in the conversation. One, huh? Yeah, and she's just, I, 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 I've just always uh, liked her, um, and and you know one thing that I, I I've been in some rooms with them. There's this thing about their relationship that, or sometimes sort of that it's you know a political marriage. It's an arrangement. So on. That's BS. It strikes me that they really love each other. They, they do. Again, I'm going to sound like I'm flacking for them, but I've been saying. Well, this for you've years. written enough that I yeah, don't think you'll be accused. But of look, that. I don't. I can't tell you what the relationship is like because, frankly, I can't tell you what your relationship is like or my neighbors. I mean, I, right. I, I'm not in their house. And it's probably not like mine. It's, it may not even be um, a, a, a type of relationship that most people are, 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 are you know, accustomed to, to seeing. Right. But I can tell you it's genuine. They yeah. really do love each other. Yeah. There's a deep amount of respect there. 
Um, and I tell you, the, the, the best evidence of it is, um, and you and I have talked about this, was you know, how he has come to her defense in the campaigns and how it throws him off his game when Completely. she's attacked. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a, a man who no, obviously adores No, I was saying to you, I, I think that he is a incomparable political genius, uh, except when he's in public and um, in defense of his own wife, when he uh, often just kind of loses it. And why is that? Because he adores her. Mm-hmm. On some level, they they really do love each other. It's it, and I've, I've and always he can't and he can't understand how people can't see the virtues that he sees. Right, definitely. What? Uh, but what is it that this? All of this would be surprising to a lot of people. Right. Uh, when you see the public persona of Hillary Clinton, um, it must it is far different from what you describe. Completely, and I would love to know your theory on this. Uh, the only thing I've able able to come up with is for some reason. She lacks one of Bill Clinton's greatest attributes, which is fearlessness. Yeah. Bill Clinton campaigns like it's the last day of uh, that he ever be able to campaign, and he lives every day like it's his last. Partly because of because of his upbringing. So he he's, lost he's his fearless. dad. Uh, yeah, he lost his uh, father as a baby and mm-hmm. was raised by an abusive stepfather, and um, in, a, in, a, in a wonderfully um, uh, esoteric uh, mother. Um, but but Hillary Clinton. Uh, for a lot of reasons that you might know better, I, I, I always thought it was partly because of all the scar tissue built up politically, um, all, all the criticism she got, some fair, some not over the years, maybe um, dealing with the, the personal scandals involving her husband. But for whatever reason, there's this wall, this, this thick layer of, of scar tissue um, between um, herself and the public. And she strikes me as someone who's... I don't know if you play sports, but you know, the, clutching the bat, the, yes. the, the baseball player who's so yeah. afraid of striking up that he's squeezing the bat. To me, that's Hillary Clinton. She's been squeezing the handle of the bat her entire career and has been a, a, afraid to, to let go. What if, for example, she'd run the kind of campaign, this is going to sound odd, but bear with me, that Donald Trump has? Now, obviously not a bigoted, sexist, uh, vacuous, policy-wise campaign, but incredibly accessible. Uh, incredibly uh, fearless, incredibly non-conventional, uh, uh, very nimble and non-institutional. Uh, you know, what if she, she was very just hard to imagine that on this issue of secrecy or or of guardedness? Yeah, a lot of the things that Hillary has come under fire for uh, have to do with secrecy. Yeah, have to the the emails um, now the speeches and the transcripts mm. to the speeches right. and so on. Uh, is this all of a piece? Is this all about caution? I think so. At least that's the conclusion I've come to and I've written about, that I can understand why she feels guarded after um, people accuse them of a, of a land deal, for example, in Arkansas called Whitewater that they really lost money on and, be, and that turned into be um, 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 a, a controversy that went far beyond that. Um, uh, there's a lot of stuff that she's been accused of that she is rightfully accused of, but there's a lot of stuff that they've both been accused of. That, that is, for example, one of her best friends in the world, a man who I knew very well and really respected, Vince Foster. Mm-hmm. Vince, you know, unfortunately killed himself. Yeah. That's all that happened. He was a very de- depressed man who killed himself. You know, I can't imagine what it's like uh, to, to hear some of the other stuff that's been uh, alleged around that. So I can understand why she's... Guard. I can understand why she doesn't trust us in the media. I can understand why she doesn't trust um, um, anybody other than than her inner circle. Um, but my point from the beginning of at least the email scandal was: you got to get over it if you want to be more than just somebody who wins an election. If you want to be a transformational president, 
Um, you've got to understand that that uh, this kind of secrecy and then the kind of dissembling um, about why you're being secret just isn't going to fly. The, the public has changed so much since the 90s, and we demand so much uh, more than we did um, just a generation ago that, that, you've, that you've got to be transparent or you can't lead. Do you think she understands that? I don't um, because the proof is in the pudding. Um, she's still... Um, saying that she um, that nothing she did violated policy, and you know she um, still isn't being totally honest about what happened and, and why it happened. So no, I don't I don't think she. Again, I can understand it. Um, um, it's probably impossible for her to forget all of the slights that she's experienced. Um, um, some of which are perceived in her own head, many of which are very legitimate. So, I mean, I think that's part of it. Part of it is, yes, she's been beaten up. Mm -hmm. Um, She also surrounds herself with some folks who are, by their nature, deeply paranoid and kind of stoke her paranoia. And you know uh, some of them. Question is, can you get elected president like that, where the demand for authenticity in a candidate is so great? Yeah, you can get elected president if you if you draw if you're running against the right party and the right candidate. Um, my problem is I don't think you can lead effectively. Um, I, could, I could see her being president. I think it, chances are she will be the next president. Um, but can you lead and really transform that office, transform the way we govern, transform the way we campaign, to help transform all of our institutions of society, which is what the kind of period we're going through now? Can you do that if? 55, 60 percent of the public doesn't trust you. And and if people really don't see you as authentic and, and you're not leading from your heart, um, you know, how can you transform uh, the way we do business um, if you're afraid of failing? Uh, how can you be a disruptor if you're afraid of failing? Do you, um, um, do you think she can change those numbers? I think she can change those numbers a bit, and and like I said, if you look at the structural advantages that a Democrat has, especially if the Democrat's running against Donald Trump, I think she becomes. Um, you think president. she will be running against Donald Trump? Well, it's probably fifty-fifty at this point, and if it's not Trump, if it's Cruz, I still think she's by far the front runner. Um, if we go to a contested convention and somebody other than those two comes out, which I think is possible, I think I think Paul Ryan would give her a harder time. That is the um, that is the storyline du jour here in Washington as we sit and speak in early April that uh, the play will be to stop Trump, have an open convention, several ballots, and then uh, when uh, no one obtains the needed delegates that uh, someone will emerge as a compromise. And that's your Paul Ryan uh, scenario. I'm trying to figure out how you get that to work in a room full of zealots who support Trump, who support Cruz, and uh, who really have contempt for the Republican establishment, mm-hmm. which would be the sponsor of such a play. Right. It would, it would, it would blow the party up. Now, the argument is the party's going to get blown up anyhow, so let's try to get the right man or woman in charge. But it, it, this is impossible to predict because we haven't had uh, even the possibility of a contested convention since what? 76 and we we haven't had it with a, a real one not right. since the 1940s there you go and we haven't had it with a party on the brink of totally blowing up or at least being transformed since probably the turn of the century so i can draw you a path to where it's somebody other than trump or cruz but it's not a very um clear one um i'm, I'm ready for anything this cycle. that's why the cycle is so fun to to cover, because if you're really smart about politics, you know you have no idea what's going to happen. Yes, that's been proven. I know I've felt that many times. I, I don't have a clue. 
Yeah. I did know from the beginning that Donald Trump um, was a reflection of a very angry America and whether or not he lasted a week or became president, that that um, the real story here, which is how disconnected we are from our politics and all of our institutions um, and how we're craving change in politics, that story is not going to go away until somebody positively changes it. In fact, Donald not Trump, Trump. Donald Trump uh, has been speaking directly to a lot of those folks who you grew up with yep. in Detroit. Well, they, a lot of those people now live where we have our only property we own. Our only house we own is in northern Michigan. And I spent all summer there last year. And this is Reagan Democrat country up, up uh, the lower part of the uh, upper part of the lower peninsula. And I'm talking to all these folks. These are good, decent people, smart people who know their politics, who know their country, who are all telling me, yeah, I know he's crazy, but boy, he's ticking off you guys in the media. Yeah, I know he's crazy, but boy, he's sticking it to the folks in the Republican Party. Yeah, I know he's crazy, but he can't be worse than what we have now. So I start calling them crazy butts. Um, and then I see, I just I got the local paper, came in the mail um, yesterday from northern Michigan. And in this township that we have, uh, that we, we're, we're at all the time, uh, Donald Trump got more than 50% of the Republican, Republican vote, and these are all Reagan Democrats. And again, the, the perception that they're all bigots or they're all stupid, um, yes, some are. Um, but these are, these are you know, hardworking Americans who for the last 30 or 40 years, it's everybody's been laying down. Yeah, and they're just, they're just looking for change in the worst way, I like to joke, and Donald Trump would be the worst freaking way. Yeah. But the, uh, and, and you've been probably as vociferous as anyone about the need to disrupt, the need uh, to bring about, uh, Huge change. about change. Um, it really feels, though, as you say, Hillary's on a track to get elected. And that would be not a change election, but a, set, a status quo election. And that's, that, to me, you could, you could make an argument that the, the only thing scarier than Donald Trump, who I can't, I can't tell you I'm more strongly opposed to than Donald Trump, but the only thing scarier than him uh, getting elected is him losing in, in the establishment declaring victory. And the political class in Washington and state capitals say, okay, we don't need change. Um, because then people are going to get really upset, and there will be a lot more people with even sharper pitchforks two years from now and, f- and four years from now. We do need the kind of change that people are demanding that's got them looking at a 72-year-old socialist and a, and a celebrity billionaire who has no right even being near the White House, let alone um, one foot in it. And so much of that has to do with the transformation, the e- economic transformation that you in, in Michigan lived through and so much of the country has yeah. lived through. Actually, it's, it's it's confluence of things, I think. You have the huge economic change, not just the recession, but we're changing the way we right. live. This has been going on for decades. Three or four decades. On top of that, the kind of technological change that we haven't seen since the Industrial Revolution. On top of it, the kind of demographic change that we haven't seen in 100 years. And on top of that, a new form of warfare that makes people anxious and not sure how to handle. We only get well, those four... Well, in a media environment that has changed dramatically. That's part of the new technology, yeah. definitely, yeah. And, and, and so that's, all those things are creating great anxiety, um, great disruption, and all of, those, all of our institutions aren't adapting to all that change, including my industry, including the media industry. Certainly politics and government isn't adapting to those, to those changes. So what happens when we have those four things happening at once? Well, that's the Gilded Age. Um, you know, that's Lincoln's generation. That's the founding generation. A couple of things happen. One, we, we start hating all of our institutions and we start throwing out presidents in Congress. Or in the case of the founding generation, we actually, you know, create a new country. Um, and also you have a generation that comes out that's shaped by those times. Our kids were shaped by 
um, new technology, economic uh, change, uh, de demographic change. And that's my only hopeful thing as I look at this millennial generation and I see the makings of the next greatest generation. And you and I, uh, we served together on the board of the Harvard Institute of Politics. Yeah. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. I must say every time I spend time with these kids, I am more hopeful about the future. I, don't, I think they are skeptical, but they're not cynical, and they're exactly. very committed to changing the world. And that, that is, uh, that's something that transcends this ugly election. It does. And, and you know, don't tell them you can't do something, whether it's changing something in a business or changing politics, because it hasn't been done before. Just get the heck out of their way and give them a laptop. And they'll find the other people who are, have the same um, passion, and, and, and they'll bootstrap a, a solution to it. And I think eventually they're going to do that to our political system from the outside in. A lot of this great social entrepreneurship you've seen being done in places like Chicago and Detroit are basically micro-institutions, micro-governments, micro-agencies uh, um, that I think are going to involve into a new way of governing, a new way of, of campaigning. That's, that's my hope anyhow. Well, then, let's leave it on a hopeful note. There you go. Ron Fournier, so good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.